If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. Hello from the towpath of the Monmouth and Brecon Canal near Abergavenny. It's a very moody November day and I'm watching a little flock of mallards washing themselves in the lovely clear water. No boats have been by for a while and there's leaves covering the surface. There's a few goldfinches flitting around in the trees, but it definitely got a strong late autumnal feel. So welcome to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. In this episode, episode 9 of the current season, I'm also on a canal, this time on a boat, and I'm with illustrator and writer Nick Hayes. And we're talking access and trespass. Nick has recently published a book called The Book of Trespass, in which he campaigns for more public access for walkers, cyclists, riders and boaters to England's most beautiful landscapes. So I headed to Newbury in deepest Berkshire to meet Nick aboard his boat on the Kennet and Avon Canal. So here we are. We're sitting on uh, your canal boat. What's 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 it called? Is this is this is a canal boat. Is it, it looks absolutely gigantic. It is. It's it's probably a little too big for the Kennet and Avon. But uh, like we've we've only been about fifteen miles down it, and we've already collected you know a number of big scratches that we're going to have to sort out <laughs> in Bath. We still still doesn't have a name. We're thinking Joanna Ferrall at the moment. Who's Joanna kind of, Ferrall. Yeah, awesome. she's a. Kind of, do you know Joanna Ferrell? No, I don't. Think. She's like a, a lesser-known uh, leader of the Peasants' Revolt, who uh, the 1381 Peasants' Revolt. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, there's this whole sort of um, alternative history that actually, you know, whether you're talking the Peasants' Revolt right through to the the Blacks' riots in uh, the early Georgian period, they weren't just kind of involving women; they were kind of led by women, and kind of women were central to that kind of sedition and the, the kind of networking and communication and, and sort of web of uh, protest. So maybe just as a bid to that, we try and put her yeah. name on our boat. I'm not entirely sure. So you're an illustrator uh-huh. and successful illustrator, but you've written a book which is, contains your illustrations. It's called The Book of Trespass for listeners. Could you sort of give a very brief premise of what you were trying to do with The Book of Trespass? Absolutely. Um, it, it, I guess it was all born from uh, one walk I took with my mum uh, back in my local countryside of West Berkshire, uh, where I just wanted to show her uh, this spot. We'd just been for lunch. We are just having a nice sort of mother-son kind of bonding session. It was a beautiful day, and uh, it was just a five-mile walk to uh, the River Pang, where I'd seen a kingfisher, for the only kingfisher I'd ever seen. And I just thought, let's uh, nip across the edges of these fields and uh, go to where the River Pang cuts through uh, our bit of countryside. Um, and someone uh, came sort of storming over the hill on a quad bike and uh, uh, was just very verbally aggressive uh, to me and my mother, uh, which obviously raised the hackles. But... Um, a sort of get off my land moment or, or yeah well he said you've got no right to be here you're trespassing um and to be honest i was sort of uh, i've done enough 
sketching outside and uh, I guess my way through the countryside has always been with a sketchbook and uh, you know paints and crayons in my hand um, and so I was I, I wasn't so surprised at his response to us being there but what really surprised me was our response uh, to to this sort of tirade of uh, aggression which was uh, to sort of bow our heads in humility and uh, you know yeah. make a 180 do a u-turn um, turn on our heels and, and not see this kingfisher lair and I wondered why did we accept that power that this uh, person on a quad bike had over us uh, that kind of definition that we were causing some kind of harm uh, so that was the seed of the book really and I just looked into um, first of all how much land in England is uh, forbidden from, the pu from public access uh, and second, like what exactly trespass means and who, who created those rules. And, uh, and, and it goes all the way back, obviously, to the Norman Conquest and to William the Conqueror. Because um, that was the interesting thing, and having done a history degree myself, it's not set in stone trespass. It was, it's in sort of pre-Norman times, land use and access was sort of more... I don't know, egalitarian, is it egalitarian the word or is it sort of slight? Sort of, I think that's sharing. a modern word for it. Yeah, yeah. The, the commons was definitely the way of uh, um, thinking about it in, in those days. This idea that someone might uh, be able to own the land, but that didn't supersede, their ownership of it didn't supersede all the commoners, as they were called then, and obviously now it's become a pejorative term. Yeah. But it was just a descriptive word of the people that use these uh, areas of land or water um, and kept them sustainable, uh, made decisions on a group level as to how they were uh, managed, uh, but also, you know, took the wood, took the uh, um, whatever it was, like whether it was gravel in the ground or the acorns, the mast for the beach mast for their uh, pigs. They were they had rights in the land mm. uh, that were married to their responsibility towards it. Um, and all of that has been destroyed by this notion of private property, which gives the owner, this one person, sole dominion, like extending right through to the idea that jus abutendi is the, is the Latin law, which gives you the right to destroy uh, what is yours. Uh, so you have full dominion, and in England, uh, but not in countries like Norway or Sweden, Estonia, Scotland very recently, yeah. It, it gives the landowner the right to sole use of the land, the, the ability to exclude all other people. Uh, and that's not just from the right to roam or the, the ability to forage or to, you know, to experience the beauty of the land, but also to make decisions on how it's used, which is also something I cover in the book with yeah. regards to grouse moors and flooding and all of that. In Britain and England and Wales, private property property is sort of king and we invest vast amounts of our, our money into it and everybody sort of wants a slice of land once people have bought that land are they not allowed to do what they what they want with it or? well to be honest i think it's the scale of degree isn't it really like uh, in england one percent of uh the population own 50 percent of the land yeah. Uh, I, like every single right to roam uh, legislation or philosophy across Europe uh, has at its heart two things. One is the right to private property and the right to a private sanctuary. Like everyone is allowed uh, their, 
their own domain. Uh, you can do what you like with your garden and you have the right not to have it invaded by people. That seems completely fair. But when your property extends over, say, 2,000 acres or 5,000 acres, or when we get to the real big guns, then suddenly we're on to 20,000 acres. And uh, it, it gets to be that the, the real damage of trespass or the laws of trespass is actually uh, to the public that live in or on or around these lands. Uh, because they just have no right, as, as we would say in our campaign, to the physical and mental health benefits of nature, which, as lockdown has proved to us, are, number one, they're unequal, yeah. people's access to land, but also we have a desperate need just simply for the public health of a nation to access these because the cost to the NHS, both in, in time and money, if people were allowed autonomous exercise, if people were allowed to kayak on the rivers that flow through their... Uh, towns, if people are allowed to, you know, walk and explore through the woodlands that are currently reserved just for pheasant shooting, the health of a nation would be improved. And that's not just physical, that's the mental health as well. So lockdown, that's a really important thing. I mean, obviously, do you think that's brought things to a head? There's, there's all these people desperate for space to roam and they don't know where to go. I, well, I think lockdown has uh, set in sharp relief uh, social inequality full mm. stop. And uh, people's, uh, the, the absolute downright necessity for people to be able to access space. So going back to um, this inequality of land distribution, how, how, what is the, is some of the stats seem absurd, like nine, nine, over 90% is of England and Wales is private you can't roam on well yeah there's i mean so obviously there's some exceptions that uh we would uh, encourage to stay exactly as they are i think about four to five percent of land is uh built upon for housing um so a hundred percent uh we wouldn't want people to go careering through other people's gardens that's not something i would enjoy that's no. not something i would even enjoy uh trespassing on i don't think because you have a deep sense that people have a right to their own privacy. I always uh, feel uncomfortable in farmyards, I must say, walking through a farmyard. Yeah. yeah a busy farmyard, I always think, could this footpath be just diverted around? Yeah. It's fascinating to see inside the workings of a farm, but also, my goodness, it's, it's a bit intimidating to walk through a farm. Of course, farm. And, and actually they're quite, um, I mean, they're very serious places. These are places of uh, uh, vital work, you know, as vital as uh, the doctors and nurses of the NHS. Um, and I'm sure a lot of farmers would uh, uh, approve of maybe actually, and this is quite a uh, maybe a controversial thing to say, but downgrading this near religious, uh, sacred kind of um, way that we hold rights of way uh, and, and paths. Uh, some of them, uh, these rights of way that cut straight through uh, fields. Um, are there simply because there were there were two fields back in the day and uh, that path um, cut across uh, the edge of the field. They've taken out a hedgerow. They've taken out the hedgerow, but the, the right-of-way um, uh, still persists. And I, I'm 100% like England has about 120,000 miles of uh, public footpath and it's beautiful. Uh, but if we were able to uh, roam, if we were able to explore, if we had more autonomy over where uh, we went, um, actually some of the footpaths that make very little sense these days, certainly to modern uh, farming uh, uh, methods, their importance wouldn't be so great. Footpaths 
did not begin life as designated uh, legal rights. They began as desire lines. They began as like the simply the most logical way to get from here to over there. Um, I understand why these uh, footpaths have become almost sacred, certainly from the rambler's point of view. Um, but in some ways, all they really serve to do is uh, shore up all the land that we're not allowed to as well. And certainly the footpath network is used as an example why we don't deserve or, or we've already got enough. Okay, that was going to be my question. Uh -huh. was, you know, we've, we've got... What is it? Was it 200,000? No, 120,000 is a generous estimate of, okay. uh, in specific to England. In, in England, okay. Um, so a lot of people say, well, you've got all this, these wonderful paths, and they, we are blessed in Britain for having those paths. Is that not enough? And you're saying no. Well, I wonder why it should be enough. Uh, you know, the, uh, the to be honest, in I agree with you, but, so. <laughs> but, um, but who says it's enough, and, and why should we take their word for it? Like, uh, uh, certainly for me, the miracles of nature, the you know, the kind of uh, uh, recently emerged stag beetles, or the if, if you're looking for mushrooms, or uh, if you're looking, if you're lucky enough to see a herd of deer, or you're not going to see those on the footpath because it's a it's a pretty daft deer that decides to uh, graze uh, on a public highway um, it all buys it all sort of boils down to this sense that uh, you should be grateful for what you've been given uh, and not question uh, the context of why you were given this um, and certainly not uh, bring up the history of uh, how that path was created and why this former commons and in what way this former commons uh, was turned into private land. And so that's a whole can of worms are opening up here, which which is the essence of your book. Well, that's the, the book thing. is yeah, the can of worms the, yeah. <laughs> sprawling is, out. Which is the um, yeah. Uh, God, there's lots of things. Actually, if we could come on to that in a bit, the of course, of yeah. Things, I think. What I'd like to just tackle quickly is, is what do you mean by Rome? What about in the more sort of traditional English counties where everything is parceled up and there are barriers? And the simplest way to answer that is to look to Scotland, uh, just over the border. Um, you could even argue out of Finland, Estonia, uh, Sweden, Norway, all of the European countries that practice a right to Rome, Scotland is in some ways the most radical. First and foremost, uh, attached, I said that there were two kind of responsibilities. One was the uh, respect of private property. And the second one is this idea that if you have the right to roam and to adventure and to explore, uh, that is contingent upon uh, a very stringent set of responsibilities uh, that in Scotland are far more stringent than they are in England. So one of the things our campaign is looking to do uh, is to say, well, if we're going to have these greater access rights, which we downright need to because of the health of a nation, what that would also do is actually shore up our, not just our understanding of uh, how to act in nature, but just shore up our responsibilities. And again, not just to nature, but to the, just the incredible valuable work that the farmers do. We're always, the rambler is always posited as the uh, enemy, as the sort of bete noir of the farmer. Uh, but from my perspective, the only way that I know anything about the valuable work that farmers uh, do is because I'm out in the countryside walking the verges of their fields, respecting the fact that these fields are 
um, essentially feeding the nation, so I'm not trampling across, uh, I'm going along the verges. Um, and actually, I've, I've seen for myself just the hard work that farmers put in. So I personally see a right to roam as a way of sort of educating the public and valorizing the, the work that farmers do. Because I think the knee-jerk reaction to certain, for certain commentators that I think we all know will be Marxist claptrap. Yeah. Um, you're trying to overturn... And, and how would you like it if we came and walked through your garden? Which I think you've answered that that, that question about. Hopefully, because it is the most common. Yeah, yeah it I, is. Well, I mean, well, it's a matter of scale and context, and actually, the law itself. I don't blame the farmers or the uh, landowners or the land workers uh, for taking that perspective, because the law itself uh, is blind to the context uh, of scale, um, and so the law. Uh, we'll see any step over a line, whether it's into 2,000 acres of deciduous woodland or into a suburban semi's back garden right. as one and the same thing. It's called a legal fiction, but uh, to you and me, it's just palpably uh, stupid. Like it, it's, well, it, it seems very it, unfair to sort of you know, a commercial estate compared to someone's back, backyard. Well, I think a child could tell you the difference yeah. uh, and again the, the one is of scale um, c can I just finish what uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you asked what roaming really yes, meant please. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and so roaming I mean Rome we've talked long and hard about whether we want to use the word roam because it does have a sort of uh, slightly pernicious uh, it sounds like burglars roam or uh, uh, there's also a sort of Vodafone roaming charge kind of vibe oh, attached see, yeah, to yeah, it yeah. But ro the right Idling to roam... And, and the sort of flaneur. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like if people are roaming, they've nothing better to do. But actually, the, uh, the, the, again, the book goes into how idleness is essentially a word uh, uh, used as a pejorative, uh, whereas mindfulness is the kind of... Uh, the way that idleness is sold to us in a... Um, in, uh, <laughs> in a way that yes, the, the sort of society yeah. now approves of. Yeah. Idleness is essentially any use of time that is not dedicated to turning of profit. Mm. Uh, whereas now mindfulness will say, hey, on, you know, let's, let's have a look. Look at the leaves mm. falling on this beautiful autumn day. Look at the reflections in the river. Remember to breathe. And it's it's re-idling. Re yes, it's re-idling. <laughs> Forget rewilding. We need re to re-idle. Yeah. One of the points I make in the book is that uh, idling only became idling when the commons were enclosed and uh, not only did the land become uh, a sort of an area that was dedicated solely to the turning of profit for the landowner, but all of those that used to take their cows to pasture, let their kid, pigs fatten, uh, keep bees on there, actually, yeah, they were turned into idlers. That was a deliberate redefinition of, of what these people were doing. Uh, it was self-subsistence, and actually self-subsistence didn't necessarily include being on your feet and working every, you know, every waking hour of mm. the day. But of course, the, uh, certainly in the Georgian area, the, the sort of renewed spate of enclosure that happened across England uh, between the 1700s and early, early 1900s also saw basically the emptying of the countryside, uh, the emptying of people who were self-subsistent on their own little plots of land or working off the commons, funneled straight into the industrialization of the, uh, you know, the mills and, and, and the factories of England. 
and suddenly people were on the clock. Suddenly people's time uh, was directly linked to a shareholder or a factory owner's uh, how much profit they could make in a day. So suddenly the concept of idol has taken on this almost kind of religious immorality that you're that you're wasting your life but just roaming, sorry just roaming, to finish yes, this idea of roaming, roaming. Um, so roaming in Scotland the right to roam in Scotland gives you uh, the right of responsible access to not only uh, the verges of farmlands the moors the mountains uh, any open country uh, with very sensible restrictions such as uh, public monuments or school grounds or places where there might be issues of privacy or security or safety but it also gives you access to uh, the lakes and the rivers and it allows you to climb to wild camp kayak to swim it gives you the autonomy essentially to draw which is what I do it gives you the uh, to forage which is what a lot of people enjoy doing it gives you the autonomy as based on the fact that as long as you're responsible, as long as you leave the gates, how you found them, as long as you keep your dog on the lead during ground nesting season or, you know, when the cows might be calving. Um, Hello. Oh, yeah. It's barges chugging by. Yeah. Um, That's all as, good. That's all good. All good. <laughs> <laughs> A little ambiance. Atmosphere. Yeah. Premised on the, on the idea that you, if you exercise your rights responsibly, you have an autonomous decision over what you choose to do in the countryside. The campaign that we're running is looking to extend the Countryside and Rights of Way Act over four terrains and hopefully we'll get on to that. But, yeah, yeah, I'm interested. But, because but for me we, it's rivers, yeah. yeah, like rivers are the heart and soul of... Uh, Shall we tackle rivers then? Because oh, that's yeah. a real interesting, we've been talking a lot about pollution and loss mm-hmm. of them, which is a huge, huge issue in, in England and Wales at the moment. Uh, and that there's lots of people, lots of different groups, who, by the very nature of what they do, while swimmers, canoeists, anglers, want clean rivers, but they're yeah. all at each other's throats the whole time. And, um, and that's an access issue. But I, I would suggest that the enmity and this weird uh, sort of polarisation between fishermen and kayakers especially, they seem to be... I, I'm not even really a proper kayaker. You can see behind you, I've got my inflatable. But this is the uh, one you took out for your journeys on the, um, for the book, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, for the book, okay, the, the, the same one. Yeah, nice. And I love it. But the, this sense that uh, all of a sudden by kayaking through rivers that are, um, are forbidden access. I, I was on one just the other day. Uh, I came off the Kennet. Uh, we just, you know, parked here, moored here, landed here, whatever yeah. you say. Um, and I went down the Kennet, did a couple of locks, and then there was a tributary to uh, a river I found out was called the Lambourne. Oh yeah, the Lambourne that comes up from the Berkshire Downs. Right, yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about it, but I just took that. Uh, It was about four o'clock, and I went two hours up the river. It was starting to get dark, and I was surrounded by private fishery signs, seven-foot metal uh, fences, barbed wire, and I couldn't get out. Um, well, in the, the, the river was channeled by by fences, <coughs> essentially to keep uh, people out of the river because it's dedicated just to private fishing. Be a trout stream. Yeah. Uh, do you think a trout stream? Yeah, right. Imagine, imagine it's that that sort of chalk stream would be. Um... But the thing is, the conversations I've had with fishermen, the ones that aren't uh, begrudging of your presence, the ones that um, uh, have just opened up the 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 underside of the river to me have just uh you know i'm obsessed with barbel at the moment i can't get enough 
of this almost sort of prehistoric huge whopping fish but the thing is like I, I just I was new to this sense of enmity uh, between the fishermen and the kayakers and I was sort of blithely and naively go up to uh, fishermen as they're um, as they're fishing and uh, the ones that did me the courtesy of uh, conversation really did just open up this idea as there are flocks of birds in the sky the murmurations there are hundreds of fish certainly on the Thames where near where I grew up uh, it, it's got a record bag on, on this particular corner just uh, uh, of just hundreds of fish uh, moving on, on beneath me on that particular area uh, and you need to talk to fishermen uh, to find out about that. Yeah. Uh, I've met carp fishermen that uh, uh, pu have been pulling out the same carp for 50 years since they were there with their, you know, in uh, schoolboy shorts with their granddad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and they lay them in the beds. Uh, they antiseptic their wounds. They measure them. They. Uh, I have like this idea that I'm supposed to have a problem with fishermen is alien to me because yeah. I find them the most fat they give me such an added and vision of what's going on. Most are very good naturalists and a hundred percent. So yes, yeah, so why, why is there an issue? But it, it, it all boils down to again this was more the Georgian era uh, like fishing rights or riparian rights uh, are often conjoined to uh, the property rights of the land so if you own the land on one side of a river um, you actually own the riverbed all the way up to what's called the Thalweg, the, the sort of the deepest part okay. of the river. But the closer you get to riparian law, the less any of it makes sense. And William Blackstone, who was the sort of uh, Georgian jurist that, upon whose writings lots of the law is based at the moment, or our understanding of the law is based, uh, himself said that you have to change the property of water uh, you had an, another legal fiction to pretend it's land otherwise you've just got no grip on it law has to pretend another legal fiction that a river is a stasis a stationary thing uh, that you can fence and the problem is that uh, because these river rights are rented off to uh, the angling clubs and, and, and quite a cost oh yeah. certainly like I don't I certainly don't blame the anglers for wanting their money's worth. The real question is, does that, does the landowner have the right to uh, offer exclusive access to a river? Really interesting. It does tie into this whole demonising of people going to the countryside and leaving their rubbish behind, which has been, you know, it has been bad. There's been some poor behaviour, but the knee jerk has been to just put the boot into them rather than to try and understand. People should know the countryside code and uh, we're not putting a step forward on this right to roam campaign uh, without also, you know, without the second step being let's educate people about the countryside. Early years education, children should uh, be learning about biology and geography uh, by being deeply enveloped in nature and hand in hand with that kind of education comes a respect and comes to be honest, just comes a, uh, a care and a love that uh, can only be generated through a visceral experience of it. You love what you've seen yourself. If a dragonfly lands on your nose and then you look it up in a textbook, that's the way to, uh, to teach people the fascination and the wonder. And you're very unlikely then to throw your rubbish in the river. 
that you've exactly you've loved that dragon. Exactly. Yes. And we would say, I mean, if you look just back there, just on the Lambourne, uh, there's a there's about four or five plastic ancient plastic bottles just shoved in the oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, back of the kayak. Um, I guess. You know, kayakers can get to spots that fishermen mm. can't. We get underneath the willow trees and the mulberry roots and, and haul out the, the, I don't know, the tarpaulins and the plastic lining and all of mm. the, the filth and the, the polystyrene that just gets caught in these roots. And we do it because, well, to be fair, it's quite fun picking up litter. <laughs> so where were we? I suppose we could talk a little bit about the history of um, some of this stuff. You talked about enclosures um, and your book, Actually, something I would like to... Your book is a series of trespasses. Yeah. And that's a sort of... That will raise people's hackles because of the natural law-abiding citizen. Okay. Well, isn't he just teasing, pulling, pulling the tiger's tail by stepping over a fence and walking onto private property? Um, firstly, how did you feel about making these trespasses? And then what were the consequences... And will you have you ever been a, a, a trespasser who's been prosecuted? And maybe we could talk a little bit about trespassing. Oh yeah, well of course those. I mean, but those signs, trespassers will be pro- prosecuted are out and out lies. They're just part of the uh, the the way that property presents itself as this kind of uh, self-legitimizing uh, edifice that, uh, that don't even question. Uh, this statement and that's certainly what a wall is when you come to a wall you feel its authority uh, and you never seek to question uh, what existed there before the wall and actually the wall itself uh, might present itself as uh, security or safety for the person on the outside but it was an act of violence done to the community uh, that it divided uh, in no uncertain terms I'm so not. What do you mean by that? Though? Just to just to sort of unpick that, because that's quite a strong term to say an act of violence. Do you mean enclosure? Yeah, I mean enclosure. A- absolutely. Like uh, just to take um, Basildon Park, which is the now owned by the National Trust, but was previously owned by uh, Lord Sykes. Or is this in Essex. No, the, no, it's another Basildon. It's an Upper Basildon, just down the road from where we are now in West Berkshire. Um, and I grew up there, and so. Uh, you know, I know uh, the woods and the streams around there like the back of my hand. Uh, but by far, the the most beautiful 400 acres of the, our village uh, is the stuff that's been enclosed by uh, Sir Francis Sykes, who was formerly of the East India Cologne, uh, East India Company. Yeah. Um, and he used the profits he made that were essentially bled from uh, India uh, to. Uh, erect walls around uh, what would have been my ancestors the commoners common land Um, the violence that these walls do to people was literally making them homeless turning their acts of self-subsistence their um, uh, ability to hunt game and all of that turning that into poaching and turning their ability to use the land um, responsibly into trespassing uh, which in a modern age where we buy our food from Tesco's and we by and large have got uh, central heating I would say the violence that enclosure has done to us is certainly can be seen in our physical health but also in terms of our mental health our inability to access the kind of calming and stress relief and uh, anxiety relieving uh, properties of nature and the evidence is there in the cost to the NHS and the um, 
just the kind of obesity and mental health crises that our country is is deeply ensconced in. So, are you advocating trespass to other people? No, not in the slightest. Uh, like, they're, they're, to answer your question directly, there was nothing in me that in, enjoys uh, crossing the line. I've kind of got through that after my teenage years. I don't feel a sense of illicit joy when I, you know, a, a gamekeeper comes up to me red-faced with anger and starts shouting at me. There was nothing... Th this book was, uh, it, it, in some total of all of its trespasses, uh, it was a deliberate act of civil disobedience in order to make a point. I don't want people to trespass more. I want the laws to be changed uh, that redefine a walk in the forest as uh, an act against the sanctity of the state. Uh, there was nothing sneaky about me trespassing on those estates. And, uh, you know, when, when someone caught me, I was, you know, did exactly as I was told. Uh, I, there was never an incident where the police had to be called no. uh, because then you can be arrested for a breach of the peace. Uh, but the if point, someone calls the police, if you're caught on private land. Yeah, if the police come at all, uh, then uh, if, they, if they turn up, and then you uh, refuse to leave the land, then that is defined as a, a breach of the peace, I and then you so. can be arrested for that. Oh, okay. But the, um, I'll sort of give away the, the, the kind of uh, twist at the end of the book, is that the, every the, single... The Hearn, is that the Hearn? Well, the Hearn, I, I mean, the I Hearn... you very cleverly, <laughs> didn't, you didn't say yay or nay whether you actually did that. Oh, right, no, 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 I won't say it, because no. essentially what we're talking about is there is a final trespass. There, there are about 16... Uh, areas of land in England that uh, if you set foot on them uh, that is instantly deemed a criminal uh, act uh, and a lot of those make perfect sense they're kind of um, like uh, nuclear power stations or places where it would be unsafe but on this particular bit of land it's basically the back garden of uh, Windsor Castle and uh, it's where Harry and Meghan were going to live or did live very briefly in Frogmore Cottage. That was a public park until uh, the mid-1800s when uh, Prince Albert decided he wanted to bathe naked in the Thames and uh, Queen Victoria decided that he'd probably need a bit more privacy. Uh, so they just put up walls around it and um, destroyed the village and the village pub that was there, moved everyone on and it became uh, it became criminal to, to walk on there. So at the end of the book, there's this kind of Italian job, diddy, you know, yeah, like yeah, what yeah. happened. Um, yes. <laughs> but there, there was a Did personal I touch reason. The rough bark of that tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, this is Hearn Street, just for context. It's yeah, Hearn, Hearn is a magnificent uh, pagan uh, god uh, from the kind of. Uh, uh, he's mentioned in Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Winter, mm. of Windsor, and. Um, uh, he just has a close personal connection to me, or I, the other way around, really. I shouldn't think he gives a fig for who I am. But, um, so, green man, wild hunt type figure. Yeah, exactly. And the wild hunt is just this fascinating phenomenon that exists across Europe as a, as a kind of um, uh, collective imagining uh, that people see uh, a sort of uh, a, a wild galloping of uh, headless horse riders and kind of. Um, yeah, a, a, a merry mad band of uh, people and he's always led in France by Harlequin uh, but in England but either by uh, King Arthur or it depends on the region that you're in yeah, but certainly in stuff. East Berkshire it's Hearn the Hunter um, and you know I've got his necklace around my neck and I love him but w what I was really saying the twist in the book is essentially that 
every single trespass that I've done has been in accordance with the Scottish right to roam. So if I, if the Scottish right to roam was uh, um, extended across all of England, not a single uh, step that I took in the book would have been a trespass. Um, I adhere to all the right, the responsibilities, but I also claimed all the rights of that right to roam. I guess we ought to finish with, it's the stuff that made me most angry in the book, was the, the historic stories that you were telling, because each trespass was illuminating a particular facet of this whole debate. Um, it was the inequalities that, that some of these, some of the wealth, some of these landed estates founded on inequality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and seem to have projected inequality since and that was that was the maddening thing um, in a nutshell can you sort of describe one or two examples that uh, well in a nutshell I think it boils down to this sense that uh, there are certain people uh, that deserve a greater share of the wealth and the uh, joy of the land than others and that is at the heart of all inequality. Uh, if you can afford it, then you have more right to it uh, than if you can't afford it. Um, so, uh, so pe- pe- people's reply to that normally is, well, they've earned it or they've inherited it, and so it's not their fault. Well, it's very hard to uh, see how inheriting something uh, constitutes earning it, uh, and yeah. certainly inheritance is one of the uh, you know the key factors of uh, continued inequality. Mm. Um, but just you just have to chapter five of my book looks at how colonialism affected uh, the English landscape, and very you know very simply the money that was paid off as just one example. Forget the money that was made through sugar plantations. Uh, and uh, the trade of enslaved African people. Um, The money that was paid by the British taxpayer uh, to compensate these property owners for the loss of their property. uh, Slaves. Enslaved African people. um, uh, Largely contributed to uh, the financing of further enclosure. So it built walls around what was common land in England. And of course, it was the commoners that were employed to build the walls that were uh, effectively walling them out of their livelihood. Um, so this notion that uh, so inequality bred further inequality. Exactly, as it as it ever will. Um, what we're questioning in our campaign, and what I'm questioning in my book, is uh, whether a person's right to own the land uh, should include their right to exclude every single other person that doesn't own the land. So, so you're not saying, well, if I'm right, you're not saying we should take land away from people and redistribute it? No. This isn't a sort of uh, Russian revolution? This no. Is a, this is a just opening up access? We'd, yeah, it's a far more a reasonable more proposition. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, it's yeah. as very simple as why can't we share? Mm. And the same applies to fishermen and the uh, fishing clubs that own our rivers. Why can't we share? As uh, you know, as I was pointing, all the plastic rubbish in the back of my kayak from last night down on the Lambourne, I have absolutely no right uh, uh, to kayak that river. But I've come back with like uh, four or five large plastic bottles that would still be there if I wasn't there uh, last night. We have, I guess, the point that our campaign is also trying to make is that it would be better off for nature in that respect 
were more people allowed access to it. There would be more people who would care for it and there would be more people that would actively seek to, to clear it up from, from the mess that has been made. Really powerful and thought-provoking stuff from Nick Hayes there. And it's an issue we frequently examine in BBC Country Farm magazine. Nick's book is definitely worth a read. It's called The Book of Trespass and is published by Bloomsbury and has lots of his wonderful illustrations too. Find out more about his Access and Right to Rome campaign at Nick's website, righttorome.org.uk. So you've been listening to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast, hosted by me, Fergus Collins, and produced by Jack Bateman. Please do leave feedback and ratings for this podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast provider you use. It's such a big help to us. Join us next week when we talk to actor, writer and producer Mackenzie Crook about his new episode of Wurzel Gummidge, which is broadcast over Christmas this year. So please do tune in for that. For now, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>